Please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the book of Revelation, that last book in the back of your Bible, and we'll be in chapter 11 this morning. So we're working our way through the book of Revelation, um, kind of taking a chapter at a time. I'm going to cover as much of it as I can, as best as I can, but we're not going to get into uh, everything. Uh, I'm happy to take any questions you might have about it or, or evaluate any conspiracy theories you do have about it after the sermon's done. But Revelation 11 is where we're at this morning. So I'm going to read the text. So hear the word of the Lord. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power of the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of light from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. Seven thousand people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumbling, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Let's pray. Lord, you have caused your word to be written for our instruction, for the renewing of our minds. And so, Lord, grant that we would hear your word, that we would meditate on it and digest it and understand it, so that we could grow more and more into the conformity of the image of your son, Jesus Christ, and so that we can know better how to live as we anticipate and eagerly long for his return. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as an avid reader, I enjoy an author who can skillfully employ interesting literary devices and can turn a good phrase. And one of my favorite literary devices is the oxymoron. The oxymoron is where you bring together two contradictory terms to create a unique word or phrase that in one sense is absurd and yet in another sense is deeply 
insightful. And the word oxymoron is itself a perfect example of its own meaning. So the word oxymoron is the combination of two Greek words, one which means sharp and the other dull. So if you think of a sharp person and a dull person, you usually don't think of that as the same person at the same time. And yet I'm sure you're familiar with some of these famous examples of oxymorons. In one of Oscar Wilde's plays, he's a character who famously said, I can resist everything except temptation. Or in William Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet, we know the famous line when Romeo tells Juliet that parting is such sweet sorrow. And then Clara Barton, who was the founder of the Red Cross, was once asked about something which she couldn't recall, and she said, I distinctly remember forgetting that. Very, very witty <laughs> phrase. And then we have the everyday examples that you know of, the, the, the saying almost exactly, or the favorite one used by parents to kids, definitely, maybe or old news, or open secret, or small crowd. And yet these devices even show up in scripture. For example, in in Romans 6, Paul makes a whole argument that is based on oxymoron. He says, we have been liberated from bondage to sin and made servants of Christ. Usually liberation and servitude don't go together, and yet they do in the Christian life. Or in Romans 12, Paul says, in view of God's mercies, present your bodies as living sacrifices. A living sacrifice doesn't go together, and yet... They do. Now, the reason I bring up this discussion of oxymorons is because on multiple levels, Revelation is an oxymoron. For example, Revelation 11 is the perfect example of the oxymoron of something that is understandably difficult. It is very easy to understand that Revelation 11 is very difficult. In fact, every commentator I read, every lecture I listened to on Revelation 11 included some version of this statement. This chapter is the most debated and difficult to interpret section in all of the book of Revelation. And if you know the book of Revelation, you know it's probably the most difficult book to interpret in all of scripture. So here we come to the Mount Everest of difficult passages, but I love to tread where angels fear to walk. And I think the best proof of this statement that it's difficult is regarding the identity of the two witnesses that you you see introduced in verse three of chapter 11. So it mentions these, these two witnesses that prophesy for this period of time in sackcloth and I counted not one, not two, not three, but nine different views regarding the identity of these two witnesses. Now, you'll be happy to know that I am not going to delineate and argue and counter-argue each one of those nine different views. That, that You'd be asleep, and it's daylight savings time already, and so let's, you know, let's go. But what I am going to do in honor of my life motto is I've decided just to present my view and the applications that flow from it and some of the arguments for why I believe it. Now, you might be asking, what is your life motto? My life motto is this. I'm always right, except when arguing with my wife. Okay, that is. (laughs) Now, it used to be I'm always right, especially when arguing with my wife, but I've since been told that I was wrong about that by my wife, and I have since changed it. But my point of bringing that up is there's obviously a lot of views. There's a lot of debates. I'm not, I don't have the only view about Revelation 11. And so when you listen to any sermon, especially one on a controversial debated passage like this, you need to be reminded that what it means to properly attend to and listen to a sermon is you need to be a diligent discerner and not a lazy listener while you hear the word being preached or taught. A lazy listener is someone who approaches a sermon or teaching like a kid approaches a chore at his house. A chore is something you just do, you check the box, you move on, and you want nothing to do with it after you're done. That's not how sermons and teachings on the word of God should be viewed. You should be a diligent discerner. A diligent discerner approaches a sermon 
like scattered seed that needs to be cultivated and harvested to make sure that it brings forth fruit. Or like you approach food that needs to be chewed and tasted and digested so it brings nourishment to the body. The best example of diligent discerners in scripture are the Bereans. The Bereans heard Paul, they listened intently to him, and everything he said, they sought to see if it lined up with scripture. And they embraced what he said because it was true. Not because he said it, but because it was in line with scripture. Now, I love when people agree with me, but I don't love when people agree with me just because I said it. That's not helpful at all. I love when people agree with me because they know I'm right. That's what I love. (laughs) No, I love when people dig into the scriptures, when they challenge and question and dig and keep digging uh, because it shows that you're actively listening rather than passively just sitting there. So be diligent discerners of the word. And now the other relevance of this chapter, the concept of oxymorons, is I believe that this chapter itself presents some of the oxymorons that define the identity of a Christian and that also mark the experience of the Christian life. These oxymorons will mark the Christian life until Christ returns. And yet when he does return, these combination of contrary things that are difficult for us to understand will be unraveled and explained and to some degree overturned when he returns. And so what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through Revelation 11, not examining everything, but kind of overviewing it, and look at three oxymorons that characterize the people of God and the experience of the Christian life. And the first oxymoron that characterizes the people of God is that they are protected sufferers. You are protected sufferers. Again, those are two things that don't seem to go together. Being protected and enduring suffering are two realities that you would not expect to exist at the same time in the same way. And yet they exist together for the people of God. For example, look at verses one and two. So what John says, and says, then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out. For it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. So let's start with what's not debated about this passage. So what's not debated is that John sees a vision of the temple of God. He's handed a measuring rod, which is equivalent to a yardstick or a ruler. It's a standard measuring device. And with that device in his hand, he goes and he measures in verse 1 a part of the temple, the the inner part, and the altar and the people in that inner part of the temple. And then in verse 2, there's a part of the temple that he's not supposed to measure. The part that he measures is protected and safeguarded. The part that he does not measure is exposed and trampled for a period of time. So those are the undebated facts. Now here's my theory about those facts. I do not believe that John is speaking about a literal temple. I don't think he's speaking about Herod's temple in the first century. I don't think he's speaking about the future rebuilding of one. Instead, I believe that he's using the temple as other authors in the New Testament use it, which is a picture of God's people. For example, listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. So he's speaking to the believers in Corinth. This is what he says to him. Do you not know, believers, that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. And so that shadow in the Old Testament of that physical building was meant to give way to a greater reality, which is first seen in Christ. Christ said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. What is he speaking of? His own body. 
And then what does Christ do when he ascends? He pours out his spirit, giving his presence to his people. And what is he doing? He's creating the new and better temple in his church. And so I think it's a metaphor and picture here of the church. Now, what is this act of measuring? Well, the act of measuring something, especially as it relates to the temple and the people of God, is a symbol and picture of marking off something to protect it, to safeguard it, and preserve it. And this shows up in the prophet Zechariah chapter 2. You can turn there or I can read it to you. And remember what I said in this series in Revelation. My presupposition, the framework I'm coming to Revelation with, everyone comes with with some framework to Revelation, and I'll I'll show my cards. My, My view is that what John is doing is he's looking at all the prophets of the Old Testament, and he's bringing them together in this kind of final climactic form to show us what the time is going to look like between Christ's first and second coming. He's giving patterns here from the Old Testament prophets to show what life is going to be like as we anticipate the return of Christ. And here's an example. He gets this image of measuring from Zechariah chapter 2. It says this, And I lifted my eyes and saw, this is the prophet Zechariah speaking, And behold, a man with a measuring rod in his hand. Then I said, Where are you going? And he said, I'm going to measure Jerusalem to see what is its width and what is its length. And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Yet I will be to her a wall of fire all around her, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. So it's this this Old Testament picture of measuring something to say, what are the dimensions that we need to protect? How many people are in this space that I need to safeguard and preserve? So you can think of it like, Um, the metaphor I think of is when I played a game growing up called Capture the Flag, uh, you would have two teams and two sides. But in the middle, we'd always set up cones and we'd mark off this kind of square section called No Man's Land. And the way No Man's Land was treated in Capture the Flag is if you were inside that marked off section, you were safe. Nobody could tag you, nobody could touch you. But the second you stepped outside that line, guess what? You could be tagged and you were taken to jail and you would yell for your friends to come and get you out. I think that's somewhat of what John is communicating here. He's marked off a section, a part of the temple, which is protected and preserved, but he's also left a part that's not marked off, which is exposed and vulnerable to the outside world. And so what's being communicated here through symbols and pictures is that there is a sense in which God's people are invincible. They are preserved, they are safeguarded invincibly by God, and yet there's a sense in which the people of God are open and exposed to suffering and trial and tribulations and hardships. In other words, God's people are protected sufferers. And Paul makes this same point in Romans 8, 35 to 37. Romans 8, 35 to 37, that famous section in that famous chapter, Paul asks the question, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And the answer implied is is no one. And then he goes on to list things that we may think of that could separate us from the love of Christ. Shall tribulation or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sore? And the answer is no. These things will not separate us from the love of Christ. But why is the answer no? Why isn't tribulation and distress and persecution going to separate us from the love of Christ? Is it because as Christians we're exempt from those things? Is it because we we get a hall pass on those things, and now it's just health, wealth, and prosperity till kingdom come? No. Because look what he says in verse 36, or listen to what he says in verse 36 and 37. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to 
to be slaughtered. He gives an Old Testament example of even the prophets who were protected by God yet had to endure suffering. And then he says in verse 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So Paul is saying that we are, as Christians, invincibly protected in the love of Christ, not because we are protected from all forms of hardship and trial, but because we are preserved in them and through them. The preposition makes all the difference. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. So protected in what sense? Protected in the sense that whatever trials and troubles and sufferings come your way, they cannot lay a finger on your justification. Your sins, not in part, but in whole, have been nailed to the cross and you bear it no more. The record of debt that stood against you with all its demands has been paid in full and no suffering in this life can undo that transaction which has already been finished. They also cannot lay a finger on your status as an adopted child of God. The price has been paid for your adoption. The papers have been signed. The new identity has been given and the father who adopts never unadopts. So no matter what trial comes your way, you can know that it is not a judge who is punishing you, but it's a father who is lovingly growing you, disciplining you, bringing you into more conformity with the image of Christ. And also trials in this life, because you are invincibly protected, cannot lay a finger on your heavenly citizenship and your earthly inheritance. Which means you you can sing confidently with the words of Martin Luther, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also, the body they may kill, his truth abideth still, his kingdom is forever. And so the people of God are protected sufferers. Well, the second oxymoron that characterizes the people of God is that they are faithful failures, faithful failures. Now, bear with me as I explain this one. Typically, in our mind, we associate faithfulness with successfulness. We usually think that those two things generally go together, not always in all circumstances, but generally speaking. If an athlete is faithful, he puts in the time to sharpen his skills, he puts in the time to to stay in shape, it often produces successful results that the world recognizes and applauds. Or if a business owner is faithful to develop a quality product, to come up with a a good marketing strategy, it generally results in a successful business that provides a nice income. But when it comes to the Christian life, faithfulness according to the Lord's standards does not always equal success according to the world's standards. That's the distinction we need to make here. And the reverse is often the case. Success by the world's standards, okay, prestige, power, possessions, position, whatever form you want to put on it, does not always equal faithfulness according to the Lord's standards. You can be faithful in the Lord's eyes and a failure in the world's eyes. You can be successful in the world's eyes and yet unfaithful in the Lord's eyes. So in other words, an oxymoron in the Christian life is that what the Lord calls faithful, the world often calls a failure. And we see this demonstrated in the ministry of the two witnesses in verses three through 10. So let's start by looking at verses three to six, which depicts the faithfulness of the two witnesses according to the Lord's standards. So verse three, and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours forth from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. 
and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. As I mentioned earlier, there there's nine different views that I, on my count on the identity of these two witnesses. So I'm not going to drown you in the details, and I'm going to just say I lean more toward what would be considered a symbolic view rather than a literal view. If you've been in here for any number of weeks, that should not shock you at all. Because I don't think we're going to turn on the TV one day and on CNN or Fox News, we're going to see live news coverage of two men who are dressed in clothing made out of camel and goat hairs who are spewing fire out of their mouth, consuming anyone who taunts them as they walk by. Call me crazy, but I just don't think that's what's coming. If I'm wrong, if I turn on the TV one day, I'll, I'll admit it. And you're, you're free to disagree with me. I dare you. But <laughs> instead, and I think regardless of what view you take, maybe a more literal one, more symbolic one, I think you can agree at the, the undergirding principle that's being communicated through all the descriptions that John gives of these two witnesses. I think these two witnesses and how John describes them is intended as a symbol and picture of how God preserves the faithful witness of his people even in the face of great opposition and hostility. These two witnesses, and then John gives a number of descriptions drawn from the Old Testament, are intended to communicate to the church that God preserves the faithful witness of his people, even in the face of great opposition and hostility. So what John is doing, I think he's taking three different strands from sections in the life of Israel, and he's kind of combining them together in the description of the two witnesses to remind us God preserves his people even in the face of great opposition. So for example, in verse four of this description of these two olive trees, two lampstands, that's a reference to Zechariah four. You can write that down, look it up later. In Zechariah four, Zechariah is prophesying of how God is bringing his people out of exile in Babylon, and he's gonna restore his people back. And part of the way he's gonna do that is he's gonna raise up Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor, and he's going to lead them to rebuild the city, to rebuild the temple, even in the face of all the opposition that they're continuing to face from Babylon and Persia and other nations around them. And then verse five, through the first half of verse six, where it talks about fire coming out of their mouth, praying for a drought and a drought happens, is reminiscent of the prophet Elijah. When you think of the prophet Elijah, you think of someone who in many respects stood alone in faithfulness to the Lord. Now he wasn't completely alone, he thought he was, but he was mostly alone. Okay, to use a, an oxymoron, he was mostly alone because the vast majority of Israel, as you remember in the story of Elijah, had turned to worship the, prophet, the, the, the idol Baal. And Jezebel and Ahab were in leadership at the time, and they wanted nothing more than to see Elijah killed and silenced. And yet God preserved Elijah. He preserved his people even through that. And then finally, the last description, in the last half of verse 6, where it talks about turning water into blood, is a reminiscent echo of Moses, kind of the the prophet par excellence of Israel's history and memory. And Moses, as you recount, had to maintain a faithful witness in the face of, at that time, the greatest power who was very hostile to the nation of Israel, which was Egypt and their leader, Pharaoh. And not only that, but he had to maintain his faithful ministry in the midst of a people who didn't really want to be delivered because they kept grumbling and complaining about the food and the water and all these things. And yet God preserved his people even through that. So each of these references is meant to help the people of God look back and recount God's faithfulness in the past to strengthen and motivate their faithfulness in the present. So for the original audience that John is writing to, 
living under the threat of Rome, living under the threat of the apostate Israelites who had rejected Jesus as the Messiah and who were persecuting them, these references would have reminded them that if God could sustain his people in the face of Egypt and Babylon and Persia and Jezebel and earlier iterations of apostate Israel, surely he can sustain and preserve us. Surely he can uphold us and keep us even as we endure suffering. And so let's boldly keep testifying. Let's not compromise and give in as we're continually pressured to do. And let's continue to be salt and light as God builds his church. That's how it would have motivated them. It's like taking that promise in in Psalm 118, 6 and 7, this precious words from Psalm 118. The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph over my enemies. That is what they were holding on to. And for us, we have the advantage of looking back over even more of the terrain of redemptive history and church history and seeing God's ever-growing, ever-expanding resume of his faithfulness. That part of why I love studying church history is because you see God's character displayed in more and more ways. You see the resume of his character growing throughout the history as he has built his church in uh, extreme circumstances. God is able to preserve his people in the face of great opposition. And the church that John is writing to in Revelation is an example of it. They were sustained in the midst of the great power of Rome and the great threat of apostate Israel that was persecuting them. And where is Rome now? It's It's in rubbles, it's in shambles, and yet the church was built on the rubbles of Rome, as it were. And so for us, we need to remember, what is the threat of cancel culture and secularism and expressive individualism and godless liberalism compared to the threat of Rome and Egypt and Babylon? Yes, sometimes we we can magnify our own circumstances and make it look like it's never been this bad, and yet when you study church history, you realize we do have it pretty easy. And yet there are real threats out there to the gospel. And yet when we look at it in light of how God has sustained his church in other times and places, if God can sustain them then, surely he can sustain us now. So keep faithfully testifying to the truth. Keep resisting the urge to compromise and keep seeking to be salt and light in the midst of this dark world. Well, now look with me at verses seven to 10. And this depicts the failure of the two witnesses according to the world's standards. So verse seven, when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. So these two witnesses have faithfully, powerfully testified to the truth of God's word. And now here is the reward for all their labors. Reward number one is that they become public enemy number one of the beast whose aim is to silence their message. And this, I think, serves as a symbolic reminder that we are in the midst of a spiritual battle, that we carry on the mission of God behind enemy lines, as it were, and that there is one who seeks to devour like a roaring lion. And so we need to be alert and vigilant and sober-minded because of that threat against faithfulness to Christ. 
And then reward number two for their faithful service is that not only does the world by and large reject their message, but the world by and large delights in their death. In fact, they delight in it so much that they make it a new holiday. I mean, notice the description here that instead of what usually happens when a prominent figure dies, you know, there's, there's a ceremony that's televised and people come and pay their respects. This one is the opposite. They show them no respect. In fact, they rejoice in and delight in the fact that they're dead and they celebrate and they exchange presents because you know, this is the next holiday that is gonna come out. And so the depiction of the world's response to the ministry of these witnesses is meant to remind us that if we are expecting the world, by and large, to roll out the red carpet, to warmly receive our message with flowers and hugs and excitement, then we're in for a rude awakening and a great shock. That is not often how it has been characterized. Now, when I talk about the world, I don't mean the world as as God has created it in its natural beauty as he spoke it into existence. I mean the world as John defines it, like do not love the world, the things in the world, meaning fallen, rebellious humanity that is opposed to God and his gospel. And when it comes to that understanding of the world, if you want to be friends with the world, fallen, rebellious humanity, all you need to do is compromise the truth of God's word. That's all you need to do. And yet, if you want to know what it's like to be rejected by the world, all you need to do is be faithful to God's word. Great example I think of is John the Baptist. John the Baptist had that situation toward the end of his life where Herod was engaging in a relationship that he should not have been engaging in. And if John wanted to live, all he had to do was keep quiet. That's all John had to do. It would have been simple. He could have said, Herod, you know, you're a great guy. Love what you're doing. Just don't vote for you. You know, he could have said something like that. Instead, he says, what you're doing is wrong. It's sinful. And Herod didn't like it. And the one in whom Herod was in the relationship with especially didn't like it. So what they wanted, John, what do they want for Herod to do? Cut off John's head. Silence him. He is a torment to us. That's what the world, by and large, was seeing these witnesses in. As you speak the truth, those who do not want to be accountable to the truth, don't want to be held to the truth, see it as a torment. And for, for many, especially in our day of expressive individualism, where one's subjective feelings are king and God and the standard by which we live, people cannot stand to know that there's someone out there who disagrees with how I feel. That's just the, the ultimate cardinal sin that someone out there doesn't approve of my internal feelings about who I am and how I want to live and what I want to do. And yet, as Christians, we're called to respectfully, graciously, gently hold to the truth. You know, Peter would remind us that when we suffer, let's make sure that we're suffering for the truth and not for being you know, the King James version of a donkey. Okay? We need to make sure that we're suffering because we proclaim the truth, not because we're being jerks. There, there's a difference there. We need to know that difference. If you don't, just you can ask my wife and she'll give you examples of what that looks like. So. so we need to know that while the world may reject and celebrate our apparent failure, the Lord rejoices in faithfulness. And he will preserve the faithful witness of his church in spite of all opposition. That's what he has done and that's what he will continue to do. Now the third oxymoron, the last one, that characterizes the people of God is that they are defeated victors. Or to put it another way, in the kingdom of God, victory is accomplished through defeat. Now, if you've ever seen the movie Patton, that famous old movie, kind of starts out with this scene where he kind of gives his military strategy, and I won't quote it verbatim, unless I get in trouble, but he basically says, 
Wars are won not by men dying for their country, but by making other men die for their country. That's how wars are won. That's his strategy. It's a good military strategy, but it's the opposite in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of God, we do not bear swords. We do not take up arms. Instead, we seek to sacrificially lay down our rights in order to love others. We seek to sacrificially serve in order to display the gospel. We give because it's more blessed to give than it is to receive. And so victory happens through defeat. Christians are defeated victors. So we just read in verse 7 to 10 of how the beast, the world, defeats these two witnesses. They, They celebrate it. And yet notice the great reversal that begins to happen in verse 11 and 12. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. So as the world is celebrating their death and the apparent defeat of these two witnesses, God raises them to newness of life. God grants them victory because they faithfully served and were defeated by the world, as it were. And although... The world stands there celebrating their rejection of them. Heaven celebrates their faithfulness, invites them in, warmly receives them, and says, come up here. The well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master was given to these witnesses. And the great reversal continues in verse 13. Look there with me. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. In my view, this verse here, verse 13, is depicting how, on the one hand, there is a part of the rebellious world that rejected the message of these two witnesses and thought they got away with it, that in the end faces the retribution and vengeance of the Lord, who says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. That they receive what was due to them for their persecuting and rejecting uh, the the witness's message. And yet, on the other hand, There is also a part of rebellious humanity that initially hardened their heart to the message, that the seeds were scattered, and yet it seems like they fell on rocky soil, that they didn't uh, bring anything to fruition. And yet, eventually, God, through his providence, through how he works, takes those scattered seeds from those two witnesses and causes them to blossom into faith. And they give glory to the God who is in heaven. I think it's an echo of what Jesus said in Matthew 5. Be salt, be light, let it shine so that others may see your good deeds. And what will they do? Give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And so perhaps this serves as a reminder that not only do we need to be constantly reminded that we are not in control of the results of our labor. Our job is faithfulness. Our job is not successfulness. Our job is faithfulness. And yet, when we do faithfully shine as light in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, there are some who maybe not even in our lifetime or we will not even know about who will see our good deeds. And that faithful scattering of seed will lie dormant, and yet someday God will bless it to grow it and bring forth fruit from it. I think of of the example of parenting. There are times where you think, we have been working on this over and over and over again, and you could count on 1,000 fingers how many times you've talked to them about this. And yet, then sometimes the Lord blesses it and they finally obey. Um, And I've I've heard that happen to other parents, and I'm praying for it, you know? But it's just a reminder that we don't know the results of our labor. We're not in control of the results of our labor. Our job is just to be faithful. That is, faithfulness is successfulness in the eyes of the Lord. Okay, it may not be in the eyes of the world, but it is in the eyes of the Lord. Well, now, if we zoom out on our passage for a moment, I find it more than coincidental that the storyline we've just walked through in the two witnesses 
mirrors the storyline of the life of Christ. I don't know if you caught that. But at the beginning, verses three to six, the witnesses powerfully testified to the truth of the word. You know, speaking the truth, signs and miracles coming from them for three and a half years. That sounds a little bit like the public ministry of Christ. And then verses seven to 10, what does the world do? The world ultimately rejects the testimony, the miracles of these witnesses, and they rejected it by putting them to death. It sounds a little bit like the life of Christ. And it's three and a half days that they're, they're sitting there, open, publicly shamed. And yet after this brief period of time where the world's celebrating, the defeat is turned into a victory when God raises them to life and brings them into his glorious presence in heaven. That sounds like Christ who was defeated and then for three days lies in the grave as the world celebrates their victory. And yet three days later, he comes out triumphant and then he ascends to the right hand of the throne on high next to his father in heaven. Now, what is the point of this parallel? I think the point is this. It's to remind us that Christ is the author and perfecter of our faith who has gone before us and he has been and already is the victorious trailblazer of the Christian life. He has gone before us to win the victory that we get to share in. And yet in going before us to win that victory, he has also paved the path of what the Christian life is going to look like to a degree. For the Christian, being in Christ does not mean exemption from, freedom from all the hardships that Christ endured. In fact, it means in some sense going through those because we identify with him. And yet we know that because of Christ, they lead to victory, not defeat. It is suffering, then glory. It is sacrifice, then glory. That is the path that Christ has paved for, for us, and that is the victory he has won for us. Well, then finally, we come to the close of our chapter, and this is the final trumpet blast. So we've been looking at the sixth blast of the trumpets. We had this kind of interlude that we're just ending here, and now the seventh blast of the trumpet comes. And like in Joshua, that's kind of the, the culminating blast. So I take this final trumpet blast to be kind of a preview and picture of the second coming of Christ and things that are going to happen at that time. And at that time, one of the things that's going to happen is all the oxymorons of the Christian life are going to be unraveled and explained and overturned. So look at verses 15 to 18. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty who is and who was. For you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. So this is a depiction of the unraveling of all the oxymorons we just saw in the previous part of this chapter. Though in this life, the people of God are defeated victors, when Christ returns, all who embrace Christ by faith, even though it may look like they were defeated in this world, get to share in his eternal victory of the kingdom that will exist forever. And those who rejected Christ in rebellion and thought they had accomplished a victory will suffer the worst eternal defeat known to man. And though in this life, faithful believers are often viewed as failures in the eyes of the world, God will so richly reward his people, as verse 18 points out, that no one will regret for a moment in eternity that they were not more successful in the eyes of the world. No one for one moment in eternity will look back on those slight momentary afflictions that they went through in comparison to the eternal weight of glory and say, you know what, I wish I was a little bit more successful in the eyes of the world. They say, I know, they would say, I wish I was more faithful to the Lord. 
And though in this life, the people of God are protected and yet exposed to suffering from the world, in the end, we will see that whatever suffering we endured, God spared us from the ultimate form of suffering, which is to have to face his just wrath, which the world who rejected Christ was not spared from. And we are spared from that because in the ultimate oxymoron, which is the gospel, the righteous one suffered for the unrighteous. The innocent one suffered for the guilty. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He who was God's very own beloved son bore the wrath that was due for us. That is the most glorious oxymoron that we get to hold to as Christians. Let's pray.